welcome to episode 3 of the DW Podcast. Uh, again, thanks very much to everybody that's tuned in to the first two. Uh, the first one's with Liam Grimshaw, uh, who plays for Motherwell Football Club. And the second one's with Gordon Duncan, the host of the Super Scoreboard, phone in on Clyde One Radio. Uh, if you've not listened to them, go back and listen to them, give us some feedback, start for the start. I should have said this before now, but if you are listening, make sure you like and subscribe. Uh, and hopefully that'll get us a, a few more listeners in the long term. So today I am joined uh, by superstar DJ <laughs> uh, and the brainchild behind Avosi Cloven, uh, Fraser Stewart. Uh, so uh, thanks very much for coming on. No, pleasure mate. It was, uh, I think we spoke about it for a few weeks but obviously it was, you had stuff on last week and then uh, Monday wasn't available so it was obviously... So Fraser, day. just to give you a wee bit of background, uh, is a DJ, a Scottish DJ uh, from Warwickshire. Who seems to be taking over the world at the moment. Nah, it's going well. Just kind of taking it step by step, but uh, it just all kind of happened quite fast, to be honest, man. I wasn't really trying to... Well, obviously I was taking it serious, but it just kind of still happened quite naturally. It wasn't as if it was forced or kind of... Uh, nah, so it's going pretty well, man. Tell us a bit of background then. How did, how did you get into the, the DJing? Well, when I stayed in Ibiza, I was obviously kind of around the music scene, into clubbing, and then... Uh, and Mother, uh, myself and Nick were involved in So Local, so we always kind of DJed locally, but we always wanted to kind of take it into Glasgow and uh, have a more serious approach on the kind of club nights. So that's when we started Incept, and then we took it into Glasgow, and it's just kind of just kind of developed from there, to be honest, man. So it's Good. still going pretty well. So it is where you, when you first picked up a pair of decks or a CD? Because uh, it, it, you use decks, don't you? Aye, aye. It's not like laptops, still decks, laptops as well. It's weird because in this generation, people kind of learn digitally and then they learn CDs, USBs and then they'll try and mess about with records so it's like completely backwards man and in the 90s or 80s whatever it would be vinyl and then they would maybe move on to USBs and then people would maybe experiment with digital stuff so uh, it's just obviously the the generation we're in and just the way technology's developed as well so I suppose, uh, uh, I suppose from my background I've always kind of played in bands and stuff and you're coming into music like I could pick up a guitar for example Aye. and try and teach myself something but Aye. you almost go to a lot of people would go to guitar lessons or drum lessons or piano Aye, lessons yeah definitely but, but it's not really like that in the, the DJ is there, there's no really anybody that you'd go nah. can you teach me how to be a DJ there, there isn't at all man it's, it's kind of basically just a case of for me it was a case of pretty much winging it man because I had a studio flat when I moved out of the house when I was 18 I had a studio flat and that's where I kind of learned well, sorry, I got a copy of Ableton and that's when I was wanting to produce stuff, but nobody ever kind of taught me how to use it. So it's like a, it's one of the main kind of software that people can use to write music, but right. you can, it's a pretty complex uh, software that you can use with internal or external hardware. Right. Uh, for my setup, it was always kind of using internal stuff and then I've started kind of using drum machines and synths, but uh, I would actually... Because nobody's ever taught me and I've not studied it, I would like to kind of know the kind of more advanced advanced route, kind of the modular stuff and just just a more analogue setup to be honest, but that's something I'm probably going to try and develop over the next few years, but just now it's kind of working for me, do you know what I mean? So I've, I've not found the need to kind of develop to that stage uh, just now, but... So what age are you now? Just done 25 last week there. So you've been DJing for eight years, I suppose? Uh, eight years, aye. It's, it's been pretty... Seems about five years now to be honest, but because it's that you're not really take, you're not really seen as a career at the start, man. It's just a kind of hobby, a kind of like lifestyle aspect as well. You're going clubbing, you're DJing at the weekend, you're going to after parties, you maybe set up a set of decks and that an iron board and start playing tunes. <laughs> so, uh, I so you don't really see it as a career, but <clears throat> that's when I do, I'd released tracks under my name Fraser Stewart and then had some great responses, like some of the biggest DJs in the world were playing it, man. So. It's, at the start, it seemed pretty surreal, man. Like, I can remember we were in uh, Ibiza, Amnesia. There was maybe like 10 years there. And I just finished a track called Wear Kick. And, uh, named after the film. And we had the sample of the Facts right. of Life scene. Right. So that was kind of sampled into it. And uh, I'd got it signed to a French label. But the, re the release date wasn't until like July. And this, was, this would have been the first week in June. So maybe like the first or third of June. And there was maybe eight or nine years in, in Amnesia clubbing and Joseph Caparati was playing and obviously we'd been drinking all day so we were obviously pretty mad with it and then uh, I can remember it was like maybe it was quite near the start of his set I was uh, I was positive I could hear my tune but anyway <laughs> <laughs> you just uh, what's that? I was positive at first I thought I was like, nah. 
So I was like, nah, I'm not going to say anything, man. What if I don't got a right tip, man. If I <laughs> said there's my chin in the business, so I never said anything, man. And then fucking... But surely lived. you must have wanted to say to your pals, that listen, listen. No, so about 20 seconds went, and I was like, yeah, it's definitely work it, man. And then it just, as soon as the first vocal came in, just like, free my pals, just jumped to my back. What? Fucking yes. <laughs> so, so I was so going to... you had no idea it was going to No, 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 no. I was... I think I'd just turned 20 at the time. But I made that track when I was 19 in my wee studio flat in Bells Hill. Right. And then uh, I can remember, I was just like, that's fucking mental, man. Like, but what happened was, because I didn't even know how this worked at the time, so when I'd got that signed up, the label had like a, an online distribution, like promo campaign. So they would have all the kind of main DJs on a mailing list and they'd send out the promo. And then... Uh, every DJ on it, all the songs. But it's in the DJ's best interest to... To obviously have the unreleased music because nobody else would have it. Ah, right, okay. So it's almost like an exclusive for them. Ah, it's, it's very exclusive, right? That's that's how it's a kind of win-win. It's, the label can get exposure from the DJ playing it, and then the DJs get the chance to play kind of like unreleased, fresh music. So uh, I still couldn't get my head around it, man. So I contacted the guys who owned the label, and I was like, "Fucking Capra, you just played the work cake and Amnesia, man." And they actually happened to play both the tracks in the EP, and I was like, "How, how have they got it, man? I, I never sent it to them, do?" And then uh, he obviously explained that it's on the promo campaign. I was like, oh, right, that makes sense. And uh, I just don't, that's. Did you get the chance to speak to the guy, Capriati? I have, I've met him a couple of times after that, man. Right. But when I met him, obviously that would be, that'd be five years ago now, but when I met him recently, he's been playing my new stuff, man. So I was like, oh, fucking hell. He, couldn't even, he thought I was French or something, man, because obviously it's like Frazier or something, I don't know. And then uh, he's like, I, I met him in Subclub, and he's like, I can't believe that's you. He's like, Keep sending me stuff and all that. I've just kind of kept in contact uh, online for him. So it's interesting when you mentioned like the DJs get the the first shot at it or they get the promo sent out because uh, I get yeah. this impression that DJs when when you think of DJs or people that are not that into the music mm-hmm. scene think of DJs. Uh, I think of some guy playing in the local pub or playing in campus in Glasgow. Uh, you do. And they wouldn't want to play a fresh track because nah. nobody would know it. You go into these nightclubs of your. I don't know what word you just describe it, but your bog standard nightclub. Uh, like commercial, just commercial like commercial music. Right. Aye, they want to play these songs that everybody's on the heard. charts and stuff. Aye, that's in the charts. If they were to rock up and play in the garage or campus a song that uh, you'd done that nobody'd heard of, people would be going, oh, what's that? Mm-hmm. How, what, what, what would you say the difference is between? I don't know, man. I suppose it's just about being kind of more artistic instead of just like, that's in the charts, it must be good. Like, go and find the music yourself, find out if it's good. And if it's, I don't know, man, like, every DJ or producer should have their own sound, so you should be kind of looking for something that fits into your, your sound, your sets, and uh, just kind of taking it from there. But it's, even in, for techno, obviously, you've got beat pop, but I've seen DJs who play just, like, the top ten tracks, and <clears throat> people don't appreciate that at all, man. It's it's almost like there's a bit of a snobbery around it. Not a snobbery. No, there totally is. In yeah. techno, there definitely is, man. Yeah. Eh? Techno snobs, man. And uh, Would you say you are? Nah, I wouldn't say I'm a techno snob. I just take it, I take my sound and kind of, I take it quite serious, man. Like, to, enough to not be too commercial, but not like kind of fucking be too much a snob, do you know what I mean? But uh, you know, it's the difference when you play in the UK and then go and play in somewhere like Berlin or something like that, man. It's just like, it's a different kind of atmosphere. It's different. The warm up DJs before you, like, fucking hell, man, that's amazing, man. It's, you never kind of heard that music before and then. You need to think like, what can I play that's kind of fresh? And every time I've played, it's always been amazing. But I suppose that's why, like, in Glasgow, you're only playing for like ninety minutes if you're lucky. No, don't get me wrong; sometimes two two hours. But if you're opening like sub club, you're playing before an international guest, so you're maybe not playing your best tracks, your kind of peak time kind of tracks. So you sometimes don't get a chance to play that kind of music. So that's why I'm quite looking forward to the Frazier all night long at the ferry because you get a chance to actually kind of play. All the music you want to play and just kind of play at your best, effectively. So we'll come on to that in a wee bit later on. Ah, yeah, cool. one of the nights that you've got coming up. But ah, yeah. Rewinding back to the start, when you says that your first club night was called So Loco, and ah, yeah. you were going under your own name, Fraser Stewart, at the time. So ah, it was, I suppose it was just after I came back from Ibiza. So I was just kind of happy just to be in the kind of club scene. To be honest, man, I wasn't really at the time. I don't think I was taking it that se- obviously I was taking it serious enough, but. It was just a hobby then, I suppose. So, uh, and when your first track got played in Amnesia, how did you get it to this record label? How did you? Well, it was a DJ Matt Cesari who I became really good pals with. Did you uh, stay in Ibiza? Ah, yeah, three three summers I done over there, right? So, 
same as about 10 years ago now, but it was, it was 18, 19 and 20, so eight, seven, six years ago, hi, so it's quite a wee, quite a wee while ago now, but um, I when I met Matt Cesare, we actually booked him for, for was that so local? I can't even remember, man. We booked him, and we booked him for so local, so we always had that kind of personal relationship, and I kind of spoke to him saying, I think before I sent him the stuff, I'd already kind of arranged to get him, to bring him to Glasgow, and I said, look, I've got these tracks I've been working on, I'd love to send them for your new label kind of thing. And uh, I'd sent him over and he's like, their two, their two tracks are amazing, man, we'd, we'd like to sign them up. And then I just kind of went from there. But uh, as my sound developed, I kind of noticed, I think I was just getting that excited to release tracks. I was releasing stuff that I wasn't even that happy with, to be honest. I was just like, get this release out, man, I'm on that label. Uh, yeah, you're rushing it because you, you want to ride that label. Stuff that wasn't even mixed and mastered properly and then, man, just getting too excited and just sending it out so that's when I kind of thought I kind of I knew more about producing man so I felt as if I'd kind of more deve- I developed my sound a wee bit better and uh, I wanted to start pursuing a kind of career basically man so that's when I start kind of started Frazier stuff uh, this time three years ago man but it seems it's crazy man I think it's only been three years but it's been it's went, uh, it seems like it's been longer than that but I suppose it's probably been from learning stuff through the kind of early stages under my Fraser Stewart stuff and then developing into a more kind of serious approach. But how the last you, year's been amazing. How did you go with the fr- Fraser? Well, my mates always call me... Fraser, Fraser, don't they? Aye, aye. My mates... TV show? Aye, Smokey Joe and fucking <laughs> stuff like that. Now, my mates always call me Fraz and then was one mate my, uh, one mate in particular, I'm sure he always used to call me Fraser. But uh, stupidly enough, when I started it, I never even clicked on that obviously that was how they spelt Frasier I thought it was spelt different for some reason man so that's probably my biggest regret about I wish I put maybe an apostrophe or maybe put like a hyphen in between the phrase and the IER or something I don't right. know but well I am phrase <laughs> phrase IER <laughs> and you compare yourself to well I am you? what's that you compare yourself to well I am no I'm saying just like the, the way it's phrase IER but it's quite funny man still even the first time when I met Adam Bear Who's, who owns Drumcode, which is one of the biggest labels in the world. When I met him, uh, he actually came up to me and he's like, so you're Fraser, right? <laughs> I just thought, like, oh, yeah, but I, Fraser, aye. So it's just funny, it's just obviously, but then when, you, when I'm in, we've played in Paris and stuff like that, they obviously say Frasier, but it's obviously just That's the way, the way they, they pronounce it. it. It's more of a French spelling, I would say. Um, What's the process like when you, you sign up to one of these labels then? Is there, do they say you have to release X amount of tracks on, on our label or is it? I, even before you even get to that stage, you need to be exclusive to like not releasing on too many labels, man. Because you're on free just now, is that right? Uh, free, kinda, three main ones, but on Frazier, I'm probably eight labels in total, counting the kind mm-hmm. of early releases, but it's labels I'm not really, it's free in particular that I'm kind of associated with it. Uh, for like label billing and stuff like that I've built like Frazier, Sleaze, Second State and then my label Elementor but uh, it's always the kind of bigger labels that you associate yourself with and then you become part of that kind of brand and stuff so uh, yeah, it's still going pretty well man So you're, you've got your own label? I launched my own label Elementor uh, fuck when was that man? I'm trying to think now I think it was about 18 months ago I started it. It was mainly just as a platform to release my own music, man, because I didn't work, I'd, I'd get requests every day to sign to like this Spanish label, Brazilian label, and that's like, but they're not gonna, you're not going to gain anything from it, so uh, I wanted to keep my music exclusive, but then I thought if I had my own label, it's a good opportunity to kind of uh, release my own stuff and kind of create a platform from it, so, totally. so went, uh, it worked out quite well, man. Who else have you got on it then? Is there other um, local artists or international uh, artists? Or? Three French guys. <laughs> Funny <laughs> enough, because obviously Frazier's French. But uh guy called Wex10, Victoria52 and Unkelvin. Uh, and I've done compilations, obviously Nick, who do Insect with. He's released on, under his alias, Radiate. Right. He's got a cool track in that entry. Uh, and then... Redosa, who I done Invasion with, which is on Carol Cox's label, man. So Brilliant. Uh, that's one of the biggest names in the game, isn't it? Aye, yeah. aye. I released my debut album on my label as well. So to be honest, I've not released as much as I probably should have, but I've not been in any rush to to kind of do it. I've been uh, there's a Italian guy, Mita. He's releasing a four track EP next month, Wide Angle, that about my label. So uh, just try to keep it quite exclusive, man. I'm not in any rush. 
there's always a concept behind it with the there's a local designer who <coughs> who does the artwork and uh, he bases it on raw elements because the name Elemento was just like I was going to call it Elements but then I thought I wanted to put some of my twist it was like Elementra it doesn't mean anything but it's yeah. just like the tagline's raw elements engineered for the dance floor so uh, it's got a good ring to it it's got a good ring to it aye so the artwork's always based on kind of raw pictures and stuff. So you can take a picture of a plant, for example, and just distort it and just edit it in Photoshop and then turn it into a piece of artwork. And how do uh, you get in touch with these folk then? If you've got folk from France and Spain and... It's crazy, yeah. man. The power of social media is mental, man. You can, yeah. you can interact with people all over the world and that's something I've probably done pretty well, man, since I started. Because even from the early stages, it's, I've always been interacting with kind of French producers, German, Italian, it's, it's, you actually, you build such a personal relationship with it. Like some people you've never even met as well, man, it's just purely online. Like, you like your pals with them? Cause ah, yeah, because you've just spoke, and it's just that interest in general. Like, it's such a strong kind of connection, because you're into the same style of music and same kind of culture, so. Uh, Is there anybody you've met in it that you thought, I really don't like you, you're a big shot, or you're... Met in person, or met in... In person, or over the internet, I mean, imagine when you're... Sending your tracks out to people, sounds like you've got a great response, but there must be some that they're either rude back to you or they just don't get back to you. Or... I know some for years, man. Even when I was sending the drum code stuff, you just you don't get a reply. But they, you need to remember these guys are getting oh, three, much? four thousand demos a day, so yeah. it's just like a sort of lottery ticket to even get it listened to, man. Never mind released on. So uh, it's just all about uh, it's, you need to build that connection, man. I think it, you need to do it in stages, I think, but. I can always remember people like Adam Bear said uh, he listens to young artists for three years. Sorry, he'll play their stuff for three years before he would consider releasing them. So he's played my stuff for three years now, so hopefully... <laughs> You'll get released for him? I would I'm still always need to consider it. I suppose it's the biggest label in the world, isn't it? So that's how you build a kind of profile from getting on these labels. Would you... Uh, so what, he says that he's been playing your stuff for three years. Is there people out there playing your tracks that, and you don't know they're playing them? A lot of the time, aye, but... I suppose like with the live stream and stuff like Beat TV and the Mix Mag streams, but like any big festivals you can just listen back to the full set. So of course, yeah. that's been a great way to find because if that if it wasn't for the live streams, there'd be so many times big DJs have played my tracks at some of the biggest festivals in the world, and I wouldn't even have knew. Do you know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. uh, but even with Instagram, though, you always people who like your music they would recognise your tracks, so they can send you stuff and. Totally. Uh, do you feel we like Spotify and stuff I certainly think we you see it with bands I don't know if it's the same for DJs mm-hmm. that people just don't make money out of music anymore it's almost live shows you have to do or is it is it different in the DJ game uh, nah it's pretty similar man obviously all the online distribution companies like Beatport and stuff they're taking all the money and then the labels they say they'll give you royalties but it's very rare you'll, you'll get you 25% right. um, but a lot of DJs especially in Berlin and stuff are using Bandcamp Right, so yeah, they yeah. can buy you can buy like people's uh, all their digital tracks online uh, you can buy their vinyls even like their merchandise and stuff so I think that's how the independent and kind of more underground labels if you like will be making, making their money, money totally I almost feel that when I see gig tickets online they think oh, I haven't seen that band 10 years ago and it was 12 uh, quid and it's like 30, 40 quid no it's, it's crazy uh, and you feel yourself complaining about it until you think when was the last time I bought a CD do you know, know what I mean? And it's, it's, it's almost, almost like ignorance there. Spotify, I think, is good for people streaming and stuff, but nah, there's no... For making money, it's all about... You need to release your big track to get the gigs off it. Aye. Whereas uh, people in the kind of commercial industry will be getting royalties and stuff off their sales, so... It's not real Cats 22. Like you, you need to be on Spotify to get folk heard. But if you're, Aye. If you're on it, then Definitely. you're almost giving it away for free. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Well, techno in particular was always about the music, man. It was never about the money, but... Aye. I think with the rise in festivals and social media, like people want to see all these big names, they want to go to all these big festivals, but mm-hmm. it's killing the club culture as well, which is a big problem, especially festivals in Glasgow. Are. Aye, 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 big time. Because if you think, man, if you go to a festival and there's maybe 20 headliners on it, and you can go and see, well, no, you're not going to see them all, obviously, but totally. there's 20 headliners playing for £50, or you can go to a club night for £20 and see one DJ. Like, That's a no-brainer almost, isn't it? <coughs> it's the experience as well, eh? I suppose when it comes to clubbing, though, a lot of it's down to the venue, eh? As, especially, nowadays it is definitely down to the venue, eh? Like, people actually prefer playing in more intimate clubs now, like Sub Club and even Club 69 in Paisley as well. Yeah, yeah. I've seen you've done a few gigs in there, eh? 
I, my friend Ivan, who runs Platform 18, he just took it over and he's doing a great job, man, because mm-hmm. I can only imagine how hard and stressful it is to get all these big names to the clubs, because totally. the festivals are now <clears throat> aren't only kind of killing the, the club culture, man, they're, they're making it harder for upcoming DJs, because the fees for DJs are just ridiculous now, man, like, obviously, you wouldn't be complaining if you were getting that kind of money, I suppose, but... Mm-hmm. Some DJs are getting fifteen grand to play for ninety minutes and all that. It's, like, it's techno music, man. It's like yeah. it's no, it's not commercial. Do you know what I mean? So it's it's crazy, man. What well, uh, you obviously see came through uh, the ranks, so to speak. Uh, when was it you thought I'm making it in this game? I'm doing really well. When I got my first big release, it was uh, Blind Spot on Panpot's label. Right, so and, uh, here, eh? uh, that was Pan- That was when I played at Watergate for the uh, to see Oz Buffy, inviting me over to play. So. It was crazy, man, because Panpot growing up, or the me players. and Nick's favourite DJs, do you know what I mean? Because yeah. Nick, uh, me and Nick played as a duo, so we're always inspired by Panpot, and we always thought, like, fucking hell, man, these guys are proper cool, man. And then... Uh, How did you get in touch with them, then? I got to know them at Sonar, actually. It was a... Funny enough, it was actually a Watergate pool party, man. Right. And uh, I always used to carry USBs. I still do sometimes, with all my tracks in them. Right. And I got speaking to them, and uh, I gave them the USB, and it's like, love for you to kind of listen to my music kind of stuff and then uh, a week or so I went by and I was on holiday at the time with my girlfriend and for some reason the email had went to my junk but it was no in, way. but in the, in the USB I'd left like a word document with my email on it and he sent me an email saying uh, these tracks are amazing and gave me advice and, advice and stuff because at the time my production wasn't I did some big releases but it was still like miles off getting Played or signed up by these big labels, do you know what I mean? Uh, so it gave me some good feedback. We stayed in touch. I'd sent them over our Avosi stuff and, and, they, and they loved it, man. Right. And uh, any time we were going to gigs, they would all sort of kind of guest lists and stuff. And we went to Sonus Festival in Croatia. I can't remember, I think it was sixes in total, and they sorted out a full week pass uh, backstage for, for all sixes. Eh? No way. So we're. Uh, that must have been surreal. <coughs> this is my it's crazy, really man. I was just like uh, walking backstage and it was just like all the biggest DJs in the world. And uh, every person you meet, it's like a director for Biat TV, somebody who worked for Resident Advisors, you know what I mean? It's like... Uh, big names in the game. Big names, aye. Yeah. But I suppose when you're in that kind of level, you're, you're, you're associating with that kind of people, in it? So uh, that was a good experience in the game. Because we were standing behind the decks when they were playing it, kind of makes you understand what it's like to kind of connect with a, a bigger audience and kind of it was just it was crazy man it was really good did you find it hard to no go up to have and ask for <coughs> selfies or say aye well funny enough when we were in IBFA last year Panpot and the Amelie Lenz were playing at DC10 so it was me Aaron and my friend Mark so all three of us were backstage in there and Ronaldo was there the Brazilian Ronaldo <laughs> Fat Ronaldo aye Fat Ronaldo oh. aye and uh, hopefully he won't watch so, this and see he's calling him fat no I don't know so he was just cutting about mad with it, man. So it was, was it? Aye, aye, just cutting about mad with it. And then there was obviously like Seth Troxler, Peggy Goo, like all these massive names were just cutting about. But obviously I was, I was standing with Panpot at the time, so I was like, I don't want to look like just a wee guy going up and asking people for pictures. <laughs> so uh, I was like, I'll hold fire, man. I'm going to ask Ronaldo for a picture. <laughs> and then uh, I went to go and get a drink with Panpot. And then I came back and then my two mates were like, look at this, man. We've got a picture with Ronaldo. <laughs> <laughs> I was quite gutted now that I never got a picture. Get one? I've, no. seen, I've seen him a few times, actually, man, like, kicking about. He's always in his He stays in IBFA, eh? Does he? Aye, aye. Well, he does in summer anyway. I don't know if he goes back to Brazil in right. uh, winter or whatever, but nah, he was, he was kicking about with free birds or something like that, man, just <laughs> loving life. He's put on uh, some amount of weight as well, like, I think he does love techno, man, and... From what I heard, he's just got guest list for life at DC10. Really? But it's mainly because DC10 is obviously one of the kind of more underground, well, it is the most underground club right. in Ibiza. It's not like Pasha or Ushuaia, but it's like, it's all about kind of money, the bottles, the VIP stuff. It's like totally underground, man. So, if you're going there, you'd be into your no, music almost. Nobody's got an ego of that there, so that's why he can just, he can go there, he can get steaming and nobody's annoying him, do you know what I mean? So, Apart from your pals. Apart from my pals, aye. <laughs> that's why you don't let Brits abroad, man. Yeah. <laughs> Nah, it was quite funny though, man. It was a good night as well. Hey, talking about IB fan stuff, when was your first gig over there? Because you went over and, as you said, stayed for a few years, but... Aye, aye. Um, were you playing when you were over there at first? Aye, aye. Well, the first season I'd done, I was just obviously partying, man, but I was I was promoting uh, my friend's boat party, so that gave me an insight. He kind of like, pff, just how things worked over there, but 
I'd be first quite a hard market, so it's you've got so much competition, but you think it'd be easy, man, and it's the hardest place ever to do a night. And yeah. when we done the boat parties last year, like we thought they would just all sell out, man, and we realised it was like proper, proper struggle, man. But even the biggest clubs over there last year, like Amnesia, uh, what else, man? Even like the new space, hi. A lot of the nights aren't selling, man, and this is like yeah. millions of pounds getting flung at it. So why is that? I think it'd be fun in general, it's just know what it used to be, I don't think it's about the music anymore, it's like, mm. people who used to go to Magal, know that that's a problem, but people who would go to Magaluf and stuff, just for the piss up, now go to Ibiza, do you know what I mean, yeah. but it was always more about the kind of music, the club and the lifestyle and the culture kind of thing, but I think it's just, it's commercialised, isn't it man, I but then know. again, it maybe is social media again, I don't know. You almost feel that, well, me not being as clued up in techno, you almost feel now that the, the holy grail used to be Ibiza and it's Berlin or it's Germany. Aye, aye. Um, Holland as well, man. The, the festivals in Holland are amazing now. Awakenings, Deck Mantle, and just uh, Awakenings do the gas out around the summer festival, man. It's just it's, it's a great experience. Right. And then Germany do Time Walk Festival, and they're all kind of related. They're, they're all kind of. It's the same, same artists in there. It's almost like a hotel chain, though. So once you're in playing at their festivals, you play for all of them. But right. there's no middle market. That's the thing, man. Like people, people say to me, oh, "How do you get the gigs?" and I can't even play in my local barn. It's just like, you can't really explain it, man. It's hard to, you need to just stick to your sound. You need to be uh, releasing music and you need to just build on it, man. It doesn't happen overnight. Like, <clears throat> I'm in, I've been in this studio till like four o'clock in the morning for like a full year in a row, man. It was just like, you just need to get your groundwork done and just kind of build from there. So It's, it's almost a lifestyle choice, eh? It is. If you're going to do it, commit to it. Yeah, I think, what year was it? 2017, I spent pretty much my full year in the studio, man, honestly, it was crazy. You're waking up feeling, like, rough, man, as if you'd been drinking. Mm. Like, banging headache, bloody eyes, tinnitus, it was mental, man, but that's just kind of, no, obviously, that I'm advising that you do that, but mm. unless you know how to switch off, which I didn't at the time, you just, you find yourself working, it's, you actually find yourself being less creative as well because you're overdoing it. Yeah. See if you're in a structure of having studio days and, uh and just kind of planning like that, you, you tend to find yourself making better music, man. So that's a word of advice to anyone wanting to and get busy in the studio. Good, good. What, uh, what's been your best gig you've played? Because, uh, I mean, we've, we've touched on loads there, but you've, you've, been, out to, I, what, you've been out to Singapore? Singapore aye, aye, so when I played, the best gig I've played in Germany is Sisyphus, which is just like, was it a scene of, uh, fuck knows what, man, it was just mental. <laughs> so when the, the night manager took me in at the club, we walked through and it was like, have you been to DC 10 in Ibiza? No, no. So it's like, there was an outdoor bit that was just like all kind of sand based, just like industrial huts. But once you get in the main room, it was like a proper club. It wasn't like, it wasn't like the way it was outside. Like, there was this abandoned car that had been set on fire like, in, the, <laughs> in the grounds of the nightclub. Yeah. And then uh, when I walked through, the night manager, fucking, I don't know what he'd done, man. He had like a mad button or something. And there was like a water fountain. And he said, watch this. And he pressed the button. And like the water fountain had petrol sun in it. So when he pressed a button, it must have sparked sun. And it was just like a big flamethrower in the house. <laughs> and I was like, this is fucking mental, man. And then uh, it was, I was playing in the, it's a famous room called the Hammer Halley, right. which must, have, must, must mean like fucking the hard room or something like that. <clears throat> and uh, so I went in, I was opening one to four, which is obviously later than what nightclubs here are open to. <laughs> so that was the opening set. Because uh, I was travelling back quite early the next day. So I said, I'll play that and then I can try and get a couple of sleep. So I was playing one till four and I'd planned, it's like a three hour set. Uh, normally, sometimes I only play for 90 minutes, man. So I was like, I'll play kind of warm up for the first hour. I can remember within the first two tracks, there was at least 80 people there. But you don't think 80's a lot, but 80 people close to you in a, in a club's quite a lot, man. So <clears throat> it was people just, nobody on their phone. Some people just dancing, just a cell, man. I just like proper going for it, man. And it's like fucking hell, this is mental, man. At the time, I hadn't experienced anything like that. And then uh, got to like third or fourth track, and I said, like, I'm going to need to fucking pitch the tempo up a bit here. So I started picking it up. And then within the first hour, the club was completely packed and just complete energy, man. Like nobody, no idiots in the crowd. There wasn't even many people drinking as well. That was that was a crazy thing, man. That's a, people just take it, like, people just wearing like, running trousers and stuff, just <laughs> taking it proper serious, man. And that's when I kind of realised how passionate people... Well, obviously I knew how big the scene was, but you don't realise at the time how serious people do take it, man. 
And then uh, the first time, so that club, they don't do any online promotion. So when I get booked, there was no Facebook event. There was no, like, I think they maybe list it, I don't know if it's an RA, but they maybe list it in some German outlets, just telling you the lineup, but that's it. No set times of it. Because they want people to go for the music, not for the DJ or the... <clears throat> and every DJ gets paid 330 euros, which isn't a lot for some of the bigger DJs. And that's, that's normally more than what I would play for in Europe and stuff. And uh, every DJ gets 330 euros. There's no like ego, there's nothing like that. So I played their set and it's like one of the best sets I've played. And I can remember saying to my mate, I was like, I'm fucking raging, man, because so many people wouldn't, wouldn't have knew who I was. Because after German people were speaking to me, man, and nobody could speak English and stuff. And uh, they couldn't believe the, the English people, sorry, the people I spoke to who could speak English couldn't believe that I was from Scotland, man. They thought I was German or like Asian or something like that. People were asking if I was Asian. And uh, fun, fun enough, on the Monday, my agent got a request from a, a gig in Singapore. And the promoter, so the, the owner of the club who is the promoter, was there with her boyfriend. And she wanted to book me because she'd heard my set. She was like, I fucking loved that, man. But the club in Singapore was the most, it's the most underground club in Asia. It's a proper cool club. So I just couldn't get my head around that. I played at the, uh, probably the second most underground club in uh, fucking Berlin and uh, got booked to play in the most underground club in Asia. But it just shows you like... It's amazing, eh? Because people are actually there for the music. I said, I definitely, man. I couldn't get my head around that. And the same agent told me, I was like, no way, man, that can't be right. And I searched up the club and I was like, this is minted, man. Uh, so from that gig, so I think that was maybe September or October, and from that gig, I managed to build a full Asia tour around it. So and that was in the fall in May, so like five months after it or something. So That's unbelievable. Uh, it was mental, man. What were you thinking before you went over there? Were you nervous? Do you get nervous? Uh, I tend to actually get more nervous in, a, in the more. See when I see when I'm playing in Germany and a small intimate club, I, you you know for a fact that everybody's listening to your music and as if like. I feel as if people would notice a fault. Well, see, when you play in Glasgow, I reckon you could probably you can put the fuck up a track and nobody would even notice, well. man. Not that I often do that, but yeah. <clears throat> I, I think people are, they're obviously, they're, they're engaging more, but they're, I don't know, it's, I, it's, I don't think they're more judgmental, but I think they're kind of, I don't know, I just feel as if they'd, they'd notice kind of more stuff. And uh, sometimes I get more nervous of, from playing in a smaller club and when playing in festivals and that I don't know tend to get nervous man because I think sometimes you're that far away though you sometimes feel a wee bit disconnected though that's why when I'm playing I always try and if I'm doing a night anyway I'll try and always have the DJ on the floor to create that kind of personal atmosphere and that connection man I think it's quite funny when people can high five you and just <laughs> fucking what's happening mate you know, it's, obviously it's annoying sometimes but it's when you're too far away in like a, a big stage man like I don't know man it's sometimes you don't feel the same when you drop a big track or something like that. Do you get requests? Because I suppose like these DJs in pubs Sometimes like, do. Oh, but can you play whatever? It's different though, like, when you play, when I first started playing in bars, you get requests for fucking stupid stuff, man. Which, all the chart music. Yeah. But you tend to find when you're playing in, the, in clubs, especially in Scotland, if somebody's asking for a request, it's actually for one of your tracks. So it's like Frazzy or Blindspot or something like that. Yeah. You sometimes do end up playing it just as a laugh or just, no, for a laugh, but obviously if you weren't going to play it, you just play it just to kind of please the people that are there. But I always try and I always try and play tracks that I think are my best tracks. That I don't think people will know. I try and avoid playing the obvious crowd pleasers now and again. But sometimes you need to do it, especially in festivals and stuff. If it's a wider audience, but I always try and play more exclusive stuff, man. And people are like fucking hell, what's that? Because I know myself, I'm out clubbing near son, and you're like fucking hell, I want to try and find that. Or, what, what music's that, man? So I always try and f find myself playing more exclusive stuff. That's interesting. Uh, What's the worst gig you've played? The worst gig I've played? Must have been one that you thought, uh, not necessarily that you were bad, but either the crowd were bad, the venue was terrible, maybe when you were coming through and... I'm trying to think of... Under... F oh no, I'll tell, I'll tell you one actually. Me and Nick played in... Uh, we got a quest to play in Newcastle. <laughs> I've heard now that this club is actually amazing. So... Uh, Your views are tainted. This was... Five, I reckon it was about five years ago. So he sent a request for it, and then uh, I said, well, and he said he was maybe looking at somebody else. I said, well, why don't, why don't you book me and Nick and we'll both come down and play? So I was thinking it was my early stages of travelling. I was like, it'd be better to go down with Nick as well. Me and Nick have been playing together for a few years now. 
Uh, so I was like, we'll, make, we'll go down and we'll make a laugh at Canang. So we went down. I can't even remember. And uh, we got the train down now. Eh? And then the guy met us at the, up, uh, the train station. And we took us down. So we'd picked a hotel just to make sure it was a half-decent one. And uh, I can remember we went to see the club. And there was this outdoor terrace bit. I'm like, this is, fucking, this is quite cool, man. And it was like, uh, this is kind of the developed smoking area. So this is just kind of taken off. We'll have you in the main room. So he took us up to the fucking main room. We were kind of looking about. And we're like, you're at it, man. This is in the main room. There was like a carpet on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> so you can imagine fucking the amount of drinks I've been spilling it, man. Uh, it just looked at the clansmen, man. It was fucking hilarious. <laughs> but the DJ booth was over in the corner. But normally you play kind of parallel to the, the audience. Right, eh? But this was as if it was the fucking light technician box or something in the corner. <laughs> so we're playing in there and then uh, he introduced us to the warm-up guy. And he's like, this is fucking Zach or whatever. You'll, uh, you'll get, you'll fucking turn the heating on for you. This is what he was saying. You'll get the place nice and warm. You'll turn the heating on. Uh, <laughs> me and that man looking at each other. You'll turn the heating on. You'll get this nice and warm. Is that? this guy's taking the piss on us. But hey, wasn't he, man? It was a total fucking, it was totally serious, man. And, eh, uh, I can remember what like, <laughs> I got to the stage for the first time ever me and Nick just started taking the piss well like doing stupid effects and just like turning the music down and going here we <laughs> just <laughs> that's how fucking that's how terrible the crowd was man and then it was a proper young crowd as well like, I think we were only 20, 20 or 21 but it was like definitely like an unders man <laughs> and then uh, the sound was terrible man I can remember the right speaker Sounded like the fucking a frog fucking croaking or something, man. It was just like just a horrible noise. And uh, I think we actually told the guy, "Look, well, maybe we're finished, man." Like three quarters through the set, we just said, "This was is that bad." Ah, it was pretty bad, man. But at the time, it wasn't. We didn't have a profile at the time, so I think it would have been worse if there was people came to see you. I don't think there was really MD there to see us in particular at the uh, time. It's one of the ones you're just there for the night. Uh, so fucking yeah, that's that's probably the worst. Under Frazier though, in the last three years, I've I've played I've played some hilarious gigs, but I've never really played any like bad ones, man. Even if it's a if, even if it's a shite sound system, the crowd are that's normally kind of up for it. more up for it. Aye. I'm trying to think though, man. I played sometimes. Sometimes I find when when I first started kind of touring as such. I found myself like, fuck man, no, I felt as if nobody knew who I was, kind of thing. Uh, so you'd just been booked through having big releases, but you were playing to a crowd who maybe weren't really that into the music. So when you're playing to people in maybe fucking Paris, who don't know who your music are, and they're just kind of standing looking at you, man. Sometimes you can feel a wee bit under pressure, but you just, that's still part of the Linux, I think, man, just understanding crowds and just understanding like the artistic kind of. Uh, I don't know man it's, it's hard to explain it's does it vary from country to country what the crowd does oh definitely aye. It's, the UK is a really young crowd man when you play in Europe it tends to go from like 22 to 30 the UK is like an average I'd say 18 to 21 22 man it's a really young crowd uh, I'm trying to think Singapore was amazing man it was it was like a proper community it was yeah. like people who were in their 30s and that who would just go to the club every week and uh, just have a proper trust in the club and the bookings and that so okay. it was amazing man was, even weekly there would still be people who were at that gig who messaged me saying when are you coming back so honestly we, we have been working on another date so uh, it was meant to be it was meant to be in May but I don't think it's going to happen in May but hopefully it'll happen pretty soon man it was, uh, I had a request from Tokyo but when was it the end of last summer I'm dying to play in Tokyo I just think the culture in Tokyo is amazing I, right. just, I just couldn't imagine just wandering in Tokyo thinking I'm playing in here the night mm-hmm. like the Beatles and everybody's waiting at the airport yeah, yeah. I'd love to go to Shibuya, see the Shibuya crossing the mad famous crossing it's just that? so busy right, just to, right. be quite cool just go there and just cut a bit man. and obviously the fashion side of the stuff's uh, quite cool in Tokyo as well and a lot of uh, kind of fashion labels take inspiration from the culture over there so quite cool man have you got lined up for this year then? Gigwise, uh, for in terms of European gigs, the last couple of months has actually been the least ever, probably for the last two years. But yeah. I think it's just I'm not too worried about it. I think it was doing a mixture of stuff. Uh, I had a few of my big tracks get held up with the kind of release stage, 
uh, I moved agencies because my agent got a new job in with a massive music publishing company. So being a wee bit of a slow start, I never had the big releases that I normally had to kind of boost that. And then it's the club scene in general is harder for upcoming DJs. Like, like I was saying about the festivals, uh, it's harder for people only really wanting to go and see DJs they know. So promoters aren't taking a risk and kind of smaller profile DJs, but sure. hopefully within the next year that will not be an issue, but we'll wait and see. You get a big night coming up though in Glasgow? I've frazier all night long. It's my first first ever one in uh, first ever one in Scotland is just myself. Me and Nick had done one before at SWG three with the two years, uh, but never done it before. And people always complain saying two hours isn't enough or ninety minutes isn't enough. So it means I get a chance to play five hours and play an opening set, peak time and some cores and stuff. I like to play some kind of eighties, like nineties and disco and stuff just for the last cause tracks. So right. I'm looking forward to it, man. It's something, it's, it's a concept as well, but the Renfrew Ferry being quite a famous venue with Daft Punk playing there in the 90s. And when you look at the interviews, people were, at, people were saying that they thought the ferry was going to sink because it was just people going fucking mental, man. Eh? So, so it's pretty crazy that to play it. I've, but when you see it now, it's a shame. It's quite, it is quite run down, but for techno, that kind of suits that. But it'd be a great investment for somebody to buy because bands do play there but right, I, don't, yeah. I don't know if it gets used uh, as much as it probably could can I venue because it's got the bit up the stairs and the, uh, the balcony yeah. Yeah. you almost go, you, am I right saying you go in up the top and then you need to I, yeah it's like an elevated kind of like a pier kind of uh, and, and when you, you go, go down, down the, the stages below you ah yeah when you yeah. go down the stages below you but there's a bit of it so like you can touch the ceiling man so it's and then the main bit's quite open and you've got the balcony so it's a, it's a good atmosphere man What's the story with Daft Punk playing there? I've seen that in your promo video that you put I don't know if it was, I don't know if it was a slam night, but I know, I think, no, I think it would have been a slam night. Slam supported them, I think, and then Daft Punk played there, but it would have been around about probably when all their big releases were out as well, yeah. so I don't know if they played with the, the Spaceman outfit right enough, but it would have, <laughs> it would have been, uh, that would have been mental. I think for people to look back and say I was there would be pretty crazy, yeah, man. That's cool. It's almost like the street they've seen in Muddle as well. Like mm-hmm. people always like say I was there, that the fucking Air Pavilion in Presswick. So I think hopefully in my generation I can try and create something like that so people look back and go, I can remember that night he played there. Or, that was a that's closed now, but that was a great venue kind of thing because things do evolve pretty fast. So it's good to try and make history or just put on a good kind of party as such it's for a good so, cause as well I we're going to be supporting Chris's house which I don't think get enough praise for what they do especially uh, how badly affected our area in particular has been it's, it's, it's pretty worrying man uh, I suppose for folk listening Chris's house is a would you say it's a suicide awareness charity? suicide awareness charity yeah. I think they're the only independent one in Scotland sure uh, so and I don't know a great deal about Chrissy's house, but what I do know is they offer counselling to bereaved families and people that are maybe going through difficult times. And yeah, I just basically just I think you can actually stay there as well if you are in a really bad place. But it's just all about speaking about it. That's that's the main thing, man. People mm-hmm. are too scared to speak, and they maybe think of I don't know if people feel embarrassed about it or maybe there's a real stigma about it. There is a real bad stigma about it, but I suppose if you're in that bad a mental state, you probably think you don't know what's going through your head. It's probably speaking out. Know the, know the first thing that comes to your mind. So it's almost if you're in that mindset, the biggest barrier is actually speaking out. You know, I would say so. Feel so isolated. Yeah, I would say so. But they've been doing a they've been doing a great job, and I think with them being independent, I think they they must get some sort of funding off the government. But it's probably only just covers what they're doing, or maybe just covers the, uh, just covers their premises and stuff. Because yeah. I, I think they maybe, I'm not, I'm not too sure, but. I've, we've only went up and met them once but we've been speaking a while to do something so I think this is a, a great opportunity to <clears throat> do something with them because the demographics for my club nights are the exact same as the most affected for their suicide uh, suicide death so it's, it's pretty scary man yeah, and if you're giving it that platform and making it you know taking away that taboo and that you know people notice it will you have banners and things up or will you I will have, we'll have stuff at the front door and then we'll have the charity boxes and maybe just leaflets and stuff I don't really know oh, yeah. but the main thing is to just to get the point across and to to raise the awareness and then profits from the night will go towards what they do as well so hopefully they can they can develop the charity and keep doing what they're doing because it's obviously a great cause isn't it man how can folk get tickets 
Uh, Resident Advisor, they're exclusive to that. They've only been on sale for four days now, but sold quite a lot. I'm quite surprised. I'm not, I'm not I'm surprised, but you need to kind of be grateful for the kind of response it's had so far because normally when I'm playing, you've still got like an international guest that people want to see. So but I think if the full concept, I think, sells like having the function one for sound system, uh, the ground level staging, because normally there is a stage, but when you're playing for five hours, I think it's important to be close to your audience and interacting with them. And uh, the guys who used to do the slam tent in the park, they're going to do a special tube light installation. Right. So it's like a, it's like LED tube light barriers are maybe only like a metre and a half long, but they, they set them round, but they can automate them into like chaser effects and flashing on and off. So I think the sound and lights are a massive factory, a good experience for a clubber. So I think that's uh, key to a, a good night. What, is it a tenner? It's ten pound, which is a bargain in this day and age, man. It's normally totally. even... A big, a big DJ playing in a small club now is like £20 a ticket, so to play at a bigger venue and to have this kind of sound set up in that's pretty good, man. There you are, Sunday the 5th of May. It's the first bank holiday in May, Sunday, Sunday the 5th. Yeah, ten, get along. 10 o'clock start. Is uh, there a wee plug for you, Fraser? What's that? There's a wee plug for you. A wee plug, guys. exactly. Get them along. So, I, away for DJing, you've got your own clothing line. I started Avosi when I actually stayed in Ibiza, but that Avosi was actually before the the DJing got pretty serious, man, so it was weird. Kind of came about, it wasn't random, but it was just a side project at the time. But I was inspired by uh, a local uh, fashion collector, Kerzo. Mm-hmm. He had a brand, I can remember I went down to his house when I was like, must have only been like 14 or 15, and I just couldn't believe the stuff he had, man. And then uh, he was doing, he was printing, he was doing all his printing himself, so and then when the brand, remember 80s casual stuff, the t-shirts? Yeah. <clears throat> when that came about, I always had the inspiration to, to have a printing company. But it was weird because the, the clothing brand came before the printing company. But obviously the two of them work well together. So it's been challenging for Avosi though. It's, at the time when we launched it, there wasn't really any brands. Uh, so people people were kind of, mo- don't get me wrong, people are still aware of it, but felt it was, a, it was easier to sell now you need to actually go down a more concept it's all about marketing uh, just about having exclusive projects and, and just moving moving with the time because even some of our older designs now like people are wanting more minimal stuff and even over shirts now there's so many brands doing over shirts now and, uh, I don't know you just need to keep evolving I guess but it's going well though man our new collections are best to date uh, we're, we're linking a lot more with the kind of music scene and uh just keeping it like functional fashion. Before it was kind of gym range and stuff you only wear in nights out, but we wanted to create like uh, fashionable stuff you can wear every day, but still, like even designer tracksuits that you can still wear every day and they're, they're smart, smart casual, and, but you can wear them in a night out as well. So that's the kind of more concept we're going down. Um, it's just a case of taking it, just taking it as it comes really. We had, we had a big opportunity to go into House of Fraser's last year. And it was six months worth of planning. We went to, we're going to uh, meetings probably fortnightly. We had a massive plan. We had all the props in place of how our area and House of Fraser's were going to look. And I'd heard from someone, it was actually one of the managers in the end, and he said, I'm pretty sure Fraser's have got quite a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes, man. I'd watch you doing. And then I raised it up in the next meeting, and then they were still, ah, everything's all good. Oh, you're joking. Denying it, aye. So this is. This is a massive company like Fraser's and this is the fucking store managers for the Glasgow store, which is obviously a massive store, man. It's probably the biggest, is the biggest department store in Glasgow. And uh, they were still denying it. And then something came out in the news and then they tried to reassure, saying, oh, don't worry. And I, I delayed it a wee bit and I'm so glad I did because there were so many companies who were selling stuff and weren't getting their money back. And, we put all our budget to this. I mean, we six months off our planning. Our collection was more, t- we had the concept range, but we had some more kind of the OV classic and original stuff that was for a wider audience. Sure. We wouldn't have released, we wouldn't have put all that in, into production if we weren't going into Fraser. So it fucked us up a wee bit, man, because we, we were left with thousands of pounds worth of stock that was meant to go to Fraser's that we had to distri- distribute between our own outlets. So, uh, it was challenging, man, but 
it's just one of the things. It's, it could have worked out, and it obviously never. But I suppose for a small company or an up and coming company like yourself, that could it could have put you out of business. It, easily, man. I and it, even before that, I don't know if you can remember, we were stocked in a store in Mayfair. Aye, yeah, yeah. Aye, so that was a massive opportunity, but it, it, looking back, it was a it was an absolute scam. Honestly, it was crazy. Really? Aye, aye. So hey, what do you mean? So they they approached us. They've got a store in Mayfair. Soho, New York, and uh, somewhere else, can I remember? These massive high-end stores. So they don't buy the stock off you. They, you provide them the stock, and you pay them a concession fee as well. So it was like £1,200 a month. For you to be stocked? Aye, so we ended up paying them. So we get reeled in, fucking hell, we're going to be stocked in Mayfair. This is huge, man. You're just thinking, you're honestly thinking at the time this could end up turning our brand into a um, fucking million pound company, do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? And, uh, I suppose you're needing to sell <coughs> almost, God, how many t-shirts you needing to sell a month? I know, this is why you start going out, so it was £1,200 concession, they never bought a stock outright, and even when we did sell it, they took 30%. So you're thinking, you're getting 70% per item. Think of, even if you based it just on t-shirts, if you're paying £1,200, they're taking 30%, you need to sell fucking... <laughs> I don't know how many t-shirts but you need to sell 500, 500 t-shirts, t-shirts to even make it worthwhile and you're not going to do that in a massive department store with f- over 100 brands or whatever so it was it was unfortunate to say to say the least but I suppose then again it's just a learning curve mm-hmm. if we had to look back now and we'd think the mistakes we'd made would be, be a piece of piss because at the time we never had any advice and suppliers it was all self-funded there was no like, there was no support even just for, even for uh, what do you call it, business gateway. They said they could maybe do something. Uh, and they could supply the signage for the shop. So I went to all the meetings, and then it came to the end of it, and they were like, "Oh, your your stores just over one mile radius from the town centre." Well, I, I wouldn't say it's a mile radius, but they must judge it by the fucking way the car goes or something. I don't right, know. Right. So all the funding for that fell through because they said we were a mile out of the fucking town centre. So if you were in the town centre, you'd have got it? It's not as if Mother was a big town. No, it's, not at all. It's still central, you know what I mean? It's, it's next to the stadium, it's next to Uppercrest, probably the biggest deli in Lanarkshire, so it's, mm-hmm. it is central, but it's just, a, just a, what you're up against, I suppose, isn't it? But I suppose to talk, talking there, though, you sound as if you've had a few hiccups, but I would say from, from the outside looking in, it's been a roaring success. Aye, aye, that's, that's what I'm saying. We, we, we do still tell people about the kind of the negatives or the challenges sorry no negatives but that's what kind of that's what just that's why you just need to kind of find a way to keep going man and just keep keep uh, plodding through because it is only getting harder man but I would still advise people if you are passionate about doing it just to just to go for it man we did have a lot of, a lot of outgoings with the shop office and, and the staff it's a team of six at one point, so then an independent brand who only stocks only their brand in a small town. And then when the landlord was kind of hinting to get the shop back, but we, we did start reconsidering like, do we still need the shop? Is it a good move? So we're like, fuck, we still wanted to keep the shop. You know what I mean? It was in the local town, it was quite a, a good wee thing we had going. So that was maybe, I'm trying, when that would have been last year that was. So we managed to keep it going for like, we managed to put the landlord off for maybe another 10 months and then it just kind of came to an end. But since the shop's closed now, it's, it's weird, it's mixed emotions up until the last month I was gutted, man. And see, when it came to it, I was like, you just need to take it in and evolve and just look at the bigger picture. Because having a shop in Mother now, is, it's not going to help the brand grow any bigger. We've, we've got the following we need in the town. People who buy the brand, they're still going to buy it online. Like Even yeah. when we had the shop, the DPD guy would leave the office and go like, this fucking round the corner mm-hmm. well I know it's just but you still need to post it out because sometimes when you go and hand over them like people would mail you and say can I get the postage back and all that uh, it's, it's mental you don't realise that your petrol's going to exactly yeah, time and money I suppose most of your sales will be online now it's the way that things are going oh, definitely it? especially with social media as well Instagram's uh, our main thing where even like see the Instagram story post see the amount of people that can view it it's, it's mental man but just now we're just studying the demographics of the brand and just looking at a kind of more serious approach with marketing and it's we've only really done that in the last couple of weeks like a, a more advanced route and it's, it's paying off already so it's looking good man who are the demographics what would you say here 18 to 25 
and it's actually it was actually coming up a lot of people who like sport and fitness. Right. Whereas we were associating ourselves more with people who sorry, people who go out kinda of clubbing, uh Ibifa, because obviously the brands related to Ibifa. And uh, I think we maybe had eighteen to thirty at one point, but it's even younger than that. I think we've even dropped it to sixteen to sixteen to twenty five. Right. Uh, just to catch the kind of teenagers who are looking to Bust into the small man's. You're telling me I'm too old and too fat. And, ah, exactly. Sporty enough to, to wear sporty it. enough. Nah, we, re- we released a we released a gym. It's weird though that's saying that our audience is sport and fitness because we released a gym campaign uh, this this month. It was uh, it was called the Active, and uh, our gym stuff have always done amazing. This did sell well, but it was nowhere near what we expected to sell. But I don't know if it's just things we like Nike advancing into more fashionable sportswear totally, brand totally. Uh, there's a Nike outlet store just at East Kilbride at f- five miles away or whatever mm-hmm. and you can go and pick up stuff there for bargains and you've got all these high end Nike running shoes coming out so I know myself now if I'm buying a new pair of Nike trainers for the gym I would be looking to buy a Nike t-shirt and Nike trackies you know what I mean yeah, so be matching almost eh? matching I so I think that's what you're kind of up against so as well as our demographics being sport and fitness I think the sport and fitness collections and ranges has become a much harder market so we'll, we'll probably be doing less uh, sportswear stuff keep that more exclusive and then just focusing more kind of advanced functional fashion fashion stuff how much effort do you put into the sourcing what's your process how do you think right this is what I want and where am I getting it from uh, well so our new supplier happens to be in Singapore so when I play in Singapore we managed to go and meet him and right. he actually came to the gig honestly yeah. he came to the gig right with his girlfriend and his brother and his girlfriend, so the, the four of them came to the gig. It's amazing. But I was playing all night long, so I played, I think I ended up playing for six hours, so... Did he get fed off? He was away up the No, he came and spoke to me in the DJ booth, but obviously, we had a meeting before in his office, so that was quite cool. Good. But at the gig, uh, Aaron and Hutchie, my two mates over there, they obviously spent the night with him getting a drink and stuff. So I never spent as much time as I would have liked to, but I speak to him in WhatsApp most days, so Good. we're on the same uh, level with stuff. And he's uh, he understands the kind of... A lot of suppliers you don't really build a personal relationship with. Yeah. <clears throat> with this guy, he's on the same level. He's, he's took an interest in my music as well, so it's, yeah. if, if, I feel as if he's the right guy who can take us to hopefully try and get any brands like Harvey Nichols and maybe work in a three, five-year plan to try and get in the end and stuff, but... Obviously, you don't, you can't predict the future. But is that your goal, though? That is the goal. I we, we want to try and be tapping into. There was a brand too. We always like the MKI, and uh, it's very similar. They actually even copied one of our collections as well. Where are they from? They're from Leeds. Right. They're quite minimalistic as well. Aye, they're very minimal. They're a wee bit more kind of hipster than us. A wee bit more out there. But they're in like fucking end having echoes, selfies, and it just shows you it is possible, man. If you if you use that as a reference, so. You just need to kind of, you just need to keep keep building it. But I have found it harder to kind of focus as much time in a because with with a we've always got a team. Aaron, the creative director, he does an amazing job. He does a lot of the creative stuff. He's been taking a lead role in the marketing stuff. Uh, and I've got we Max Mel, uh, John was helping out for a good bit. So we do have a good wee team. But for my music, I'm the only person that can make that happen. So <clears throat> I need to try and make sure we've got a team of stuff doing what needs done and then I can still jump between two without kind of falling behind so the first year of DJing taking off I did struggle with that to find the balance and then obviously we have Avose my Frazier stuff uh, Incept the club night uh, they're doing Nick my record label Elementary so you, you can end up spreading yourself thin and you can end up just being so unproductive with and just it's weird you just need to find that balance so how do you find it what's your <clears throat> uh, just scheduling stuff in just kind of trying not Nick takes quite a lead role in the all the kind of booking side of stuff for Inset he'll fill out the itineraries uh, when we're programming launching events he'll he'll do the, all the groundwork for that and we'll just still work between each other so it's, it's quite weird he's still you've got that main role but you still need to kind of prioritise certain stuff totally. but uh, I find it hard to hand things over so I suppose I've also it's your, it's your baby eh? aye aye that, that's why I think working with Aaron's always been quite good because he's managed to build 
we understand each other's stuff and if I've got a kind of creative idea I can or sorry if I'm go home and I've got this idea I can come in in the morning and say I had this idea to do this and then Aaron can maybe photoshop stuff and before you know it we can just fire an idea together like that and okay. sometimes we can be in the office and you can just not really be up to too much just kind of pawing away with emails and stuff and then all of a sudden you just get this buzz you just like you're making stuff happen orders are coming in and it's just like it's a buzz because obviously you go through all the stressful parts of just like all the paperwork, the tax, the accounts, just laying out money, maybe not taking as big a salary as you should and stuff. Yeah. Um, but it's but it's so worthwhile when you get that wee buzzy Good. stuff coming through. So. Where can folk check you out then? Where What's that? Where can folk check you out online? Uh, Instagram's our main one, uh, at Avosi across all our social media, Facebook, Twitter, and uh, you can always via my page, personal and DJ pages, you can see regular updates as well. We're going to, we're going to hopefully be doing a, a stand at Terminal V this year as well, right. which has obviously became one of the biggest dance festivals in the UK, so hopefully makes sense to tie in with them with me being a resident there as well. So. Brilliant, sounds like you've got a lot planned and thanks very much it's for busy. coming on. I know, pleasure mate, thank Not you. Bad. Cheers. Cheers. Uh, so thanks very much uh, for listening to episode three. Uh, you can check it out on Twitter at the DW Podcast One, uh, on YouTube uh, at the DW Podcast, uh, and all the usual social channels as well. Just like to thank Fraser, uh, Fraser, Fraser, <laughs> Fraser, uh, for coming along, uh, and thanks to everyone for tuning in again. Cheers. Cheers.